Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of History, Pei Yi Chu, a historian of Russia and the former Soviet Union, whose research aims to understand the environment through the history of science and technology. Welcome, Pei Yi. It's nice to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, with us and not with us. <laughs> Virtually, yes. Um, so how, how are you adjusting to life during this pandemic? Um, I think, you know, do, doing the best I can. Yeah. Um, you know, it was obviously, you know, not ideal to have to transition online and not be able to meet with students in person, but um, I've been doing my best and I've really admired the way, you know, many of my students are just persisting, you know, persisting with their education, with their learning and with our, with our course. And so I'm really grateful to them for that. Your um, research interests kind of intersect um, between history and the environment. So which one came first? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, history came first. Well, you know, it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> I think I, I had interest in, in both. Um, uh, I would say perhaps most uh, history came first in a serious way. Mm -hmm. um, I think I always enjoyed history in, in primary school and high school. Um, I love the stories, the storytelling aspect of it. Um, and actually, even before um, history, it was it was Russia, actually. Um, mm. I became interested in Russia when I was growing up. You know, I mean, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of my earliest political memories. I remember mm -hmm. hearing, you know, I was in fifth grade at the time, hearing people talk about the breakup of the Soviet Union and and I, I just didn't know what this meant. You know, I thought it, it was literally breaking up, you know, into <laughs> you know, 15 pieces. And, and that was just um, kind Big of earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really confusing <laughs> to me, really puzzling, but also really intriguing. You know, mm -hmm. what did it mean for, for something like for a country to break up in, in that way? And, and so, um, you know, I got, I was kind of curious about um, Russia and this, in its history, I, I, you know, grew up um, playing classical music, so was very interested in, in Russian composers and Russian music. Was interested in Russian literature, um, and I was just kind of drawn into to studying this place that seemed so distant from me, so 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 removed from my ex own experience. But at the same time, you know, would be talked about in certain ways, you know, like this this enemy, this other, or this you know kind of bizarre place and. So I was kind of drawn to learning about Russia. And when I went to college, I didn't know what I was gonna major in or what I was gonna study, but I did know that I wanted to study Russian language. Like that was mm. you know, a, a new thing that would be opened up to me in, in college because you know, I, I, we didn't have um, Russian offered at my high school or you know, in the schools that I was growing up in. So I knew I wanted to study Russian. And, and so I did, and I kind of, you know, took my first history courses that were totally focused on Russia, learned a lot about its history. And, and uh, you know, that's kind of where I started. Yeah, that's where I started. So what inspired you to, um, to pursue a, an academic career? 
Oh, that's a great question too. I, I actually started off um, as pre-med in college. Uh, that was kind of, um, I guess, something my, my parents hoped that I would do. You know, my, uh, my parents are immigrants, I'm an immigrant. And I think, you know, they, they really wanted to see their children get a good education, get a good, find a good, you know, stable, respectable profession and career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for them, you know, very understandably, like medicine yeah. represented that for them. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, that's how I started off. I was taking, you know, general chemistry, organic chemistry, biology. I wouldn't say I did very well in those courses. <laughs> um, I, you know, I tried my best, but, um, I don't know. I think I was just drawn to, to other things. And, and so, um, you know, I was supposed to declare my major, I think, end of my sophomore year or junior year. And I, I decided that I was not going to pursue pre-med anymore. And I was going to study Russian history instead. And <laughs> um, yeah, that was kind of a, uh, I think, not very pleasant surprise for my parents. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it was just very strange idea to them you know like I guess they kind of thought of my interest in Russia as just something quirky and something else you know Mm -hmm. just doing as a hobby or in my spare time and so it was it was a little bit it was really hard I think for them to wrap their minds around what (laughs) why I would want to study Russian history and what you know what kind of job would I do with that and Mm -hmm. um when I applied to graduate school it, it wasn't um I think from a very savvy perspective, it was more that, you know, I, I felt like I had started this exploration of Russia quite late. I wanted to do more of it. You know, I'd gotten kind of two years of, in my major and I, I felt like there was more that I wanted to learn. And, and so that's why I applied to graduate school. And it was, it was a bit of a naive, um, perhaps move because um, I, I didn't, I don't think I really fully understood what graduate school um, entailed at the time that I applied. I just thought, <laughs> I would get to learn more about Russia <laughs> and I did for sure. <laughs> um, but, but it was about a lot of other things too. You know, it was about um, learning what it means to pursue research as a profession, learn what it means to um, do scholarly research and do archival research. And um, I think a lot of that I learned along the way. So it was a little bit of a curvy path, I guess. Um, yeah, it was, I wasn't, uh, I was just kind of just following my interest, um, that's how I ended up going to academia. Or to, so, I ended up doing it a PhD at least, yeah. yeah. So we've established that history came first. When did environment, the environment kind of enter the picture and become part of that, that uh, research picture for you? Yeah, so um, it was definitely during graduate school. So I actually started off um, thinking I was going to research uh, the economic development of Siberia, you know, because I was um, very interested in, you know, the, the peripheral regions of, of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. I felt like um, a lot of what I learned in my coursework was focused on developments in the kind of core of the former Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, the European parts of, of um, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And so I thought I would, you know, kind of research something more in the peripheries. And um, I started off researching the history of this one economic development project, uh, the building of this railroad called the Baikal Amur Railroad, which stretched um, from Lake Baikal um, in Eastern Siberia to the Pacific coast. And as I was, as I started to research this, 
you know, modernization project, this industrialization project, I kept coming across, you know, sources talking about frozen earth or permafrost and, you know, all, all about the obstacles um, that this phenomenon presented to building railroads and factories and towns. And, and I just kept wondering, what is permafrost? <laughs> like, what is this um, phenomenon that keeps coming up in my sources? And so that's, that's when I started to kind of dig deeper into the history of this, you know, phenomenon, the history of how people studied it, and um, then started to think about um, the relationship between, you know, humans and non-human nature, which was part of what the story was about. And um, I, I got my eyes opened up to this field of environmental history, which I really didn't know anything about, as well as the history of science. And it kind of just it went from there, you know, that that little piece um, that seemed like just seemed like it could be just an ancillary part of, of my research kind of took over the entire project. And so that's how I came to study the history of um, permafrost science and, and our knowledge about this phenomenon. So you, so the history of permafrost became your first book. That's right. Yeah. Can, can you tell us, can you tell us more about your book? Yeah. So, um, my book is about the history of permafrost as a scientific object. You know, I call it a biography of a scientific object. You know, instead of thinking of it as a fixed thing, um, I look at the ways in which um, human imaginations about frozen earth have evolved and changed over time. And so um, what we now call permafrost today really has this complicated history of different ways of imagining this phenomenon. And then and the way that we that people have thought about this phenomenon have been shaped by historical circumstances, you know, especially political and economic and cultural circumstances. So for example, um, in the 19th century, um, when you know, frozen earth became a scientific object, a focus of scientific interest, one of the reasons that people wanted to learn about it was um, because uh, the Russian empire was building a railroad, for example, the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And parts of this railroad um, uh, traveled along regions with permanently frozen earth. And so um, they found that there were obstacles that emerged when people were building um, infrastructure on frozen earth. For example, um, sometimes the earth would thaw and the railroad and the road beds would sink. Um, or sometimes um, structure, structures will be subject to something called heave, right? Which is the process by which um, the earth, you know, um, when it freezes, expands and the surface kind of, you know, rises and when it thaws, um, it kind of sinks. And so this kind of rising and falling, this kind of expansion and contraction, you know, has effects on the infrastructure. And so, you know, one of the reasons for understanding it, um, one of the motivations for understanding this phenomenon was um, to, uh, for engineering purposes, right, for engineering purposes. Um, but uh, the reasons for studying this phenomenon changed over time. You know, um, sometimes people were interested in frozen earth um, because they wanted to understand, you know, the earth as a system, you know, how it is that um, exchanges of minerals and heat take place um, in the earth. And so uh, there was this other motivation for studying frozen earth um, that was less about the kind of the practical engineering motivations and more about trying to understand the earth as a system. And so um, these different motivations led to different conceptions of what frozen earth was. You know, for example, was it ice or was it earth? You know, was it, um, should it be defined on the basis of temperature or should, should it be defined on the basis of material composition? Um, was it maybe a process or a condition rather than a physical object? 
Um, and so these different ways of imagining frozen earth kind of emerge at different times in history. Yeah. Um, and so, so there, oh, go ahead. Oh, and, and so um, I take this story from the 19th century um, through to the 20th century um, when, you know, the study of frozen earth became a, a scientific discipline for the first time in the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, even, even, for example, the, the English word permafrost, it comes from a Russian expression, uh, which is Vyashnaimirzlata. So um, the definition of, of permafrost today, which is ground that maintains a temperature of zero degrees or lower for two or more years. You know, a really kind of interesting, very intricate kind of technical definition. Um, it really emerged in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s as the study of frozen earth was becoming institutionalized as a discipline. And why was it becoming institutionalized as a discipline? Well, precisely because um, of this industrialization imperative that the Soviet regime embraced at the time. You know, the idea was that we need to transform, you know, these backward peripheral parts of our country into these modern industrial um, territories. And, and so studying frozen earth had a very kind of practical, political um, consequence or importance. And so, you know, funding was given to these scientists to kind of develop this discipline. And that's when this definition of, of frozen earth kind of came into being, right? It was, a, it was a definition that was very oriented toward practical purposes, you know, um, temperature. Um, I mean, it's very odd to think about you know, something called permafrost or Vietnamese means eternal in Russian, you know, having, you know, this idea of eternal eternity on one, on the one hand, and this definition that's, you know, about two years or more, right, which doesn't sound like very <laughs> eternal. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, temporarily eternal. Yes. Exactly. Well, it was about, you know, um, basically, the difference was whether you know, this earth was going to stay frozen throughout the year or was it whether it was going to freeze and thaw seasonally, right? And that was kind right. of a practical yeah. distinction that they needed to make. And so, you know, two years, good enough, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of time frame of our construction project. That's what kind of, that's what matters to us, you know? And so there are all these ways in which like um, the understanding of frozen was shaped by these very practical and political um, uh, priorities of, of the Soviet Union at the time. And, you know, interestingly, um, when the United States government became interested in frozen earth, it was also for practical reasons. You know, it was for building, you know, airfields in Alaska during the Second World War. Um, it was about, um, you know, building building military installations in the Arctic during the Cold War. You know, for fear of a of an armed conflict with the Soviet Union that might take place in the far north. And so, you know, the the U.S. scientists, the North American scientists, and Canadian scientists. Who became interested in frozen earth in the second world war they were also interested in the practical aspects of the phenomenon and and when they you know wanted to learn about this find out you know who had studied this what had they learned they turned to the soviet scientists you know um u.s scientists start translating reading um soviet scientific articles um, and that's where the definition of permafrost comes from you know it's from a, a, a translation of you know of, it's a loan translation of the Russian expression, Vietnaya, eternal, Merzlata, which can be translated in many ways, but frozen earth might be one of them. And so um, uh, the, the person who coined the term permafrost was a geologist named Seaman Mueller. He was actually a Russian American geologist. He 
um, his family, he had fled the Soviet Union during the 19, after the 1917 revolutions, ended up in the United States, became a geologist, eventually worked at Stanford University. Um, he coined this expression based on his translation of the Russian. Right? And he also borrowed the translation, the, the definition uh, that the Soviets had come up with and kind of attached it to this new term, permafrost. And so, so, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about how, I don't know, we might take for granted these definitions, you know, these, these um, phenomena in there and, and kind of assume that that's just the way they are. Like that's just how they are in nature. That's how uh, we understand them. But if we kind of open up these black boxes and look a little bit at the process by which our understandings of nature have evolved, we see that there are a lot of um, different influences on how we understand nature and the environment. And, um, and that's, that, that really interests me. You know, I, I love to think about how things we take for granted are really the product of a lot of contingent factors. Um, I think that's something really interesting that history shows us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you approach your work? Um, are you, do you work mostly in libraries? Are you out in the field? What, what, how do you do your work? Yeah, um, great question. Well, I mean, part of my work is definitely working in uh, archives and libraries. And in, and you know, in, in history, it's all about like, where are your sources? Um, where do you, where do you find your sources? And so um, some of my sources came from traveling to Russia um, and working in the archives of the government, uh, the, the archives of um, the Academy of Sciences, um, and working with these kind of unpublished um, archival documents. Uh, and some of them are, are fascinating. For example, in the archives of the Academy of Sciences, you know, I was looking through the files of this one committee that studied frozen earth. It eventually became the first institute for the study of frozen earth in 1939. But reading through, through their files, you can see the meeting minutes and even the transcripts in the meetings that they held, you know, where you see the scientists kind of debating with each other about the meanings of these different concepts. And you see them kind of, um, you see the way sometimes they use political ideas and, and, and um, concepts to talk about science. You know, for example, um, during the Soviet Union, um, of course, Marxism-Leninism was the official ideology of the state. And um, in some of these debates, and Marxism-Leninism, of course, was a kind of political philosophy, but it was also kind of a, a philosophy of, of, of knowledge, right? A philosophy of science, um, this aspect known as dialectical materialism, right? It was, it was part of the ideology of Marxism-Leninism. And for some scientists, this, 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 you know, this framework of a dialectical materialism meant what was very meaningful to them. Like they, they thought that, you know, it could really be used or could be used as a way to kind of understand nature. Um, and some of the scientists who worked on frozen earth that I studied in the 1920s and 30s, they were quite inspired by this notion of dialectical materialism. They wanted to use it to see how we can think of frozen earth not as a static object, but as a phenomenon that's constantly in interaction with its environment through exchanges of heat and, and, and minerals. And so it was really interesting to kind of look into the way people were thinking at the time and, and maybe, you know, challenging some notions about ide the relationship between ideology and science. You know, we might think of 
you know, one way of thinking about the relationship between ideology and science is think of ideology as being harmful to science. You know, um, Marxism, Leninism, dialectical materialism, these were kind of ideological, you know, straight jackets that scientists had to operate within in order to conform uh, to the official culture of the Soviet Union. But it wasn't, it wasn't just like that. I mean, I mean, it's, for some people it was like that, but for others, um, these ideologies were a source of inspiration. They were trying to um, think about how they could use that framework to study nature. Um, you see ideology as being for some an inspiration. And so it isn't just this you know, black and white picture of ideology you know, oppressing science. But for some scientists, ideology was a resource. And I think that's also a really interesting part of the, of the story that, that I tell and, and found. Oh, but you were asking about how I do a mark. Yeah, so like, that's one of the benefits of, of, of going to these archives. Of course, it's very, um, it's very complicated. You know, there's a lot of procedures one has to go through in order to go to, to work in a Russian archive. There's like visa issues, there's like permissions from the archives. And so there are many, many steps and it can be kind of frustrating sometimes, um, you know, sometimes um, I, I, I've, I've been in situations where I wasn't allowed to look at certain documents even though it was technically declassified. And, and so there's sometimes these kind of struggles. Um, but, but one of the amazing things when you get there and you get to look at the documents is, is just, you know, finding out these nuances, finding out the, you know, getting an insight into the personalities of the scientists in this kind of unfiltered way. It's all very raw, <laughs> all very immediate. Um, it's also, you know, at first it's like you're swimming in this huge ocean. It's like tons of material. And, and you know, often the documents make references to things that I didn't really understand at first. You know, it just seemed very disconnected. And only over time, as I keep reading and reading, do, do things start to connect. And you're like, oh, I know who this person is being referred to in this document. Oh, I know this agency. And, and it, you know, things start to come together. But, but at first, it's just, it's overwhelming, you know, the amount of material and, and how, how to pick out what's relevant and important is, is very challenging. So that's kind of um, part of my work, you know, is trying to um, make these connections <laughs> that they may not be, be immediately apparent to me. Are any of the materials that you work with being digitized? How how are you going to approach your work now in, in the time of pandemic and you know, now that traveling is going to be a little more difficult? Yeah. Um, I would say the particular collections I'm looking at, uh, or that I looked at for, for the first book, um, probably aren't going to be digitized. But certainly a lot is being digitized, yeah. And... Um, you know, the, the official website of the, the Russian archive, State Archives of Russian Archive, um, they're always kind of digitizing um, new, more and more documents. And, and it's fascinating. And it's a really great resource to draw on for students, you know, who are doing um, original research at this time. And um, so I, I think I'm still wrapping my mind around how this, you know, how the pandemic is going to affect my research. And um, I'm sure that I will be relying more on either published materials I can get through the libraries or yeah digital documents yeah. that that's a big big question for the future <laughs> yeah um, you were talking about the relationship between ideology and science um, yeah. the I mean we live in a time when 
you know, expertise, scientific expertise of all kinds does seem to be tied to ideologies, in whether or not people want it to be. Um, a lot of um, experts are suspected of having political agendas and um, it, I mean, is that unique to the US or did you see that in, in your work in, in Russia or in other places? Well, in terms of um, Soviet history, I mean, definitely, <laughs> definitely um, practice of science was, was affected by ideology. I mean, I mean the, the most um, infamous case of this, of course, is um, the case of Trofim Lysenko, who was a, um, what he called an agrobiologist, right? He was a, a biologist in the Soviet Union, but he um, subscribed to this idea that um, acquired uh, traits could be inherited by uh, an organism's offspring. And, and he was kind of opposed to Mendelian genetics. He was opposed, he didn't believe in um, the existence, you know, of, of these genes as being, you know, carriers of, of uh, traits that would be passed on to the offspring. And, and partly this was, um, partly his ideas accorded with, um, with the ideology of the time in, in the sense that, you know, um, uh, you know, that, that, um, you know, nurture over nature, kind of this idea um, that that um, species beings could be improved, um, and that we were not kind of uh, you know biology was not destiny in that way, and 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 so in 1948 um, at this very you know infamous Congress um, conference of the of the All Union Agricultural Institute in the Soviet Union, you know, it was revealed that Lysenko's ideas, um, which many um, people now consider, you know, like pseudoscience or not scientific, um, you know, obviously um, genetics has become a very powerful tool um, for understanding, um, you know, inheritance and, and, and biology. But, you know, the Communist Party kind of came out in favor of Lysenko and kind of um, made uh, you know, approved of, of his ideas. And, and this was cited by many in the West as the example of, um, you know, the, the repression of, of real science by, by the Soviet regime and by Soviet ideology. Um, in fact, you know, genetic, geneticists in the Soviet Union continued to, to do their work, you know, and they, they found institutional homes that kind of protect them from, um, from, you know, from unemployment or or not being able to carry out their work. Um, so Lysenko, he achieved a kind of propaganda victory, um, but um, actual work in genetics continued in the Soviet Union. So I guess to your question about um, scientists having to navigate, I guess, um, the ideological demands of their time and the ideological pressures, that's certainly a story of the Soviet Union um, as, it, as it continues to be a, 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 a challenge today. P, um, what are some of the current projects that you're working on or, or pre-pandemic projects that you were working on? 
Um, yeah, well, I'm kind of in between projects right now. I'm, uh, um, you know, wrapping things up on the, the, the book, which will come out um, hopefully in the fall. And so, yeah, thinking about what my next project will be. And um, I don't know, I'm kind of interested in two different areas right now. Um, one is thinking about um, indigenous knowledges in Siberia and how they shaped um, Russian and Soviet understandings of, of the environment there. Um, this kind of came out of my first project um, where some of the sources that we're reading talk about how the vocabulary of frozen earth was borrowed from uh, indigenous peoples in Siberia. So um, for example, um, this word tarin, uh, which comes from the Sakha language, uh, refers to this kind of um, winter flooding that takes place um, in regions with frozen earth and the creation of these you know, great ice fields. Um, and, and other terms like bulgunyak, you know, refers to these heave mounds, these kind of per, um, protrusions of the earth when, when the ice within them expands and then kind of the surface kind of puckers, you know. Um, and, and so I started to become interested in, you know, how, what are some other ways in which knowledge about the environment um, derived from indigenous knowledges in Siberia? And so that's one of the, hmm, that kind of piqued my interest. And I'm interested in kind of going through these, you know, 19th and 20th century expedition reports and travel narratives and, and looking at the, the encounter and the, the relationship between these explorers from, you know, the European part of Russia or even from Germany um, going into Siberia and, and, and what they learned um, about the environment, how they learned to, to understand the environment how that might have been shaped by their encounters and interactions with indigenous peoples. So that's kind of one line of inquiry that I'm pursuing. Um, I guess the other, the, the other kind of area that I'm interested in is quite different. Um, it's about, I'm really kind of interested in um, understanding uh, the relationship between globalization and the environment. And this is like really big picture, um, but thinking about um, this period that some scholars have called the Great Acceleration, you know, that refers to the time period after 1945, when um, human impacts on the environment, you know, grew. So uh, on, on uh, many, you know, exponentially, and kind of really curious about how the international economic system, the international financial system, how that relates to this um, growing impact of the humans on the environment and, and what the Soviet Union, um, what the Soviet Union's experience, how that might've contributed to it. Um, and so I'm kind of interested in exploring that as well. Um, but I'm in the kind of early stages of thinking about both of these and I'll do a lot more reading. Um, I mean, I, I'm, Curious about a couple of things that may or may not be in your area. Um, they're they're more on the science side, maybe. The um, I mean, I'm I'm curious about how how climate change is viewed in the Soviet Union and whether it um, plays into what you do at all, and the and the and the effect it's having on the permafrost. Yeah. Um, 
Well, maybe I'll answer the second question first. Um, so frozen earth is thawing, yeah, as a result of, of global warming. And um, you can see the effects of this on the cities in the far northern parts of Russia, um, like the city of Norilsk, for example, which is a, a kind of, um, is a nickel producing uh, city in, in the northern part, the Arctic part of, of Russia. And, um, you know, the way buildings have started to sink and deform, you know, can be traced to the thawing of the frozen earth beneath them. And it is causing a lot of, um, you know, deformation of infrastructure. And, and that's definitely a, um, a very visible way in which global warming is reshaping the landscape uh, of, of these cities. Um, so definitely um, they were, uh, there's an effect uh, there. Um, to your first question about how do, well, I guess people in Russia want to be Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, uh, Russia. <laughs> thinking about um, global warming. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's scientific debate about um, the anthropogenic causes of it. I mean, there, there's some, of course, who, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think global warming is, is, is uh, not only um, understood and recognized, but also felt, um, it's experienced, um, it's, it's uh, visible in the landscape, it's, it's um, you know, fires, uh, the, the, the fires in, in Russia in the summer have been um, growing in intensity and this is all kind of, um, yeah, it's experienced, it's felt and it's, it's understood. Um, and, you know, some Russian scientists are leading researchers in understanding the effects of global warming on, on permafrost. And, um, you know, a group of scientists have looked at not just frozen earth on, you know, the terrestrial parts of, of the earth, but also on the seafloor and um, how, you know, the thawing of, of frozen, frozen earth, um, not only on land, but under the, beneath the seafloor can be affecting on our planet. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, there are other scientists who, um, I mean, I, I've, I've read kind of articles about um, scientists, uh, Sergei Zimov, um, you know, up in kind of eastern, northeastern um, Siberia, who has this very uh, ambitious plan to bring back, you know, Pleistocene era type animals as, as a way to kind of um, uh, recreate the environment of that time um, and, and, and combat global warming in this way. And so I think there's a huge, huge range of, of ways of engaging with, with global warming um, in, in Russia from, you know, these big grand, <laughs> you know, very ambitious schemes to trying to just really understand the mechanism of of you know the thawing of, of, of permafrost, how it's thawing, um, what are the byproducts of its thawing? You know, is it carbon dioxide or is it methane? What's the proportion of the, these byproducts? And so there are a lot of um, scientists also engaged in this kind of kind of work. Can you tell us a little bit about the recent courses that you taught? Um, can you tell us a bit of some of the you've enjoyed the most? Um, sure. I. 
this semester, I can tell you that I taught, um, well, two courses. One was the uh, survey of modern European history, which I teach every spring, and which is just, um, which is a really big picture look at the history of Europe since the French Revolution, right? Since 1789, all the way to, well, I try to get up to the present. Uh, we definitely go through the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but we talk a little bit about the post-collapse as well. Um, and so that's, that course is always fun because it's, because you get to see these big trends, you know, revolution, modernity, totalitarianism, you can make connections between phenomena between the, you know, 18th, 19th and 20th centuries to look at the ways um, uh, different parts of Europe related to each other. So it's, it's a really fun course, um, even though it covers so much history <laughs> and so much, uh, so many events, um, it's a really nice opportunity to step back and think about the big picture. Of European history. Um, the, the other course that I taught was a research seminar uh, on researching the Cold War. And uh, that's a research seminar. So we, you know, the students in the course, they, they go through the entire process of conceiving, researching, writing and revising an original research essay, you know, a research essay based on primary sources. And, and I think the Cold War is a really great topic um, to kind of use as the focus of research because there's so many documents being declassified and released and digitized, you know, to go back to your earlier point. Um, and so, you know, the State Department, you know, um, you know for the Foreign Relations of the United States, you know, all those kind of documents have been digitized and put online. Um, the CIA's electronic library. And so students can really use um, uh, these digital databases to write their own research essays. And um, so, so it's a very challenging course um, because, well, well, it's challenging to learn not only how to find primary sources um, and, and synthesize them, but also to learn how to position one's argument within a historical scholarship, right? Within the scholarly literature to, to research what other people have done on the topic that you're interested in so that you can articulate how you're building on, contributing to, or contrasting or challenging um, th works that have been done before. And so I, I think it's a course that, that really, um, really introduces students to the idea of history as a discipline, as a conversation, um, not just a bunch of facts and dates and events that we have to kind of memorize, but really as um, an evolving conversation in which, you know, things that you know, we might imagine are, are settled and we understand, we understand them actually um, always kind of yield fresh insights when you, when you look at the sources yourself, you know, when you, when you don't just take another scholar's word for what happened, but you actually go and find the sources and read them yourself and try to um, synthesize them yourself. Yeah. And so those are the two courses that I taught this semester and um, I think uh, were I don't know, always rewarding for me to watch students kind of take on this challenge. You also teach a class in the history of science, not this semester, right? Is that correct? Or Well, yeah, I teach, I teach a course on, or I have taught a course in the past and I hope to in the future, um, a course on science and empire, um, which looks at the history of science in connection with um, European imperial expansion and mm -hmm. looking at how, um, um, how science evolved in the process of these encounters um, 
in the Americas, um, in Africa, in Asia. And it's, you know, science wasn't just something that emerged in Europe, you know, <laughs> like yeah. in this kind of self-contained way, but, but it was, um, it was through these encounters with different knowledge systems, different places, um, new, you know, artifacts, new plants, new <laughs> um, fossils being gathered from different parts of the world that contributed to, you know, the development of science. And so, um, yeah, that, that, that's also a research seminar actually. And so people actually, uh, students actually delve into looking at some of the primary sources, um, you know, travel narratives, um, you know, reports about um, European naturalists, for example, encountering different medical practices around the world and thinking about how that might have shaped um, European science and medicine. We mentioned um, earlier on how we've uh, had to do the make a shift to online teaching. So um, how did um, that shift um Make you, how did you adapt your teaching to that shift to online? Oh, great question. Um, well, they were different for, for each of the two courses. Yeah, so um, for the research seminar, the plan from the beginning was to transition more toward um, independent and small group work after the spring break. Um, in order to focus more fully on the, the research essays. So in the first part of the semester, we were doing a lot of readings and discussions, but in the second part of the semester, we were supposed to delve more into the independent research essay. And so that's what we ended up doing. Um, we were meeting in small groups to workshop um, people's drafts and, and um, I was meeting individually with students to, to help them move forward with the research essay. And so I think that um, that was how that course went. And, you know, it was, it was challenging for students because, you know, they didn't have the same access to the library um, that they would have had if they were here on campus. Um, but they've, you know, been very resourceful and in finding digital archives and the librarians have been amazingly helpful in, in scanning, um, articles and uh, for students to use. And so I'm just kind of receiving the final versions of the essays now, but I would say, um, I mean, I am very admiring of, of what they were able to accomplish uh, under these really difficult circumstances. So um, yeah, I, I really look forward to, to see, reading the final versions of those essays. Um, the survey course, um, it was, it was more challenging. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I have some students who are international students and who now had to kind of call into our synchronous meetings in the middle of the night. And so <laughs> there's just, wow. there's yeah. been some adjustment. Um, and I, I've tried to introduce new ways for people to participate that don't entail absolutely having to you know, meet at the same time um, everywhere. And actually, um, I think we've still been able to have these really interesting discussions more, more in small groups, you know, not as a whole class, but um, in small groups, I, I listen in on those discussion days to, to different groups and 
um, it's still, I've been still able to connect and explore with students some of the sources that we've been reading um, in these, in these kind of, in this more digital environment. Yeah. And I actually learned to play with some of the settings on Zoom, you know, for example, you know, you can put a virtual background. Um, and so I started to kind of quote unquote broadcast from different locations in Europe, depending on whatever <laughs> the lecture day was about. So, you know, on the day we were talking about the Hungarian revolution of 1956, I broadcasted from this movie theater in Budapest, you know, which mm. located in the square <laughs> where the, you know, the revolutionaries in 1956 had kind of set up a little fort, you know, were de defending themselves against, you know, Soviet troops there. And I, mm -hmm. and I'd kind of introduced, you know, this, the location of the day at the start of every lecture and talked about, you know, why, uh, why I'm broadcasting from, you know, Budapest or Prague or, you know, Frankfurt or any, or something like that. So I tried to kind of find ways to make use of that technology. That sounds like fun. fun. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I mean, it was, at least it kind of introduces an element of surprise. You know, where yes. am I going to pop up? Uh, <laughs> where in the world are you next? Exactly. Yeah. Where in the world is Professor Chu? Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with historian, Pomona Professor Peiyi Chu. Thanks, Peiyi. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you. That was great. Thanks for having me. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.